Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. At the beginning of our service today, we sang what is likely a well-known hymn to you, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And we've all probably sung that hymn a number of times in our life, particularly around Reformation Sunday in October. But have you ever noticed that that hymn actually tells a story? The hymn it tells a story of a, a battle, a fierce war that's taking place with extremely high cost and high stakes on both sides. And what we find is that we are a part of that war. The hymn begins, of course, by stating that God is our mighty fortress. And not only that, but a trusty shield and weapon. He is both our defense as well as our offense. And we desperately need him. Because as the hymn depicts, the enemy enters the field. The old evil foe, Satan himself. And he is deploying... His weapons, deep guile, it says, which means crafty and clever intelligence, as well as great might. In fact, as we hear, there is on this earth not one person who can stand up to him as his equal. And so we might begin to think, well, what are our chances against such an enemy? If we fought this battle a hundred times over, we would lose each and every single time. The devil would always crush us, always drag us down, always have complete power over us, and there would be nothing that we could do about it. That is, unless... There is one on our side who fights for us, someone else who enters the battle, someone like a valiant one whom God himself had chosen, a champion who would fight on our behalf. Well, as you know and can probably guess, Jesus Christ is exactly that person. And that's who the hymn describes enters the fray. Now, to better understand this, we need to see that Luther, Martin Luther, is describing something from history called champion warfare. It's where two armies would line up face to face, battle lines drawn, but instead of uh, mutually destroying each other in battle, they would agree to allow one person, one champion from each side fight it out, and whoever won that fight, their side was the one who would win the field that day. And so a a famous example of this from the Bible is David and Goliath, where no one from Israel wanted to, to face the Philistines' champion, Goliath, that mighty giant that is until a small shepherd boy from Bethlehem, armed with only a sling and and smooth stones. And he said that he would do it. And so David for Israel became their valiant one. Well, this idea of champion warfare is precisely what we also see taking place in our gospel reading today from Luke chapter 4. Jesus, who is our valiant one, is battling Satan, which is this world's prince. And and this isn't some low-stakes banter where they got together, and and this also isn't a a little skirmish taking place. This is an all-out, to-the-death 
war. And the stakes are even greater than we could ever imagine. The stakes are the entire future and eternal future of all the world and everyone in it. Now, the battleground in Luke chapter 4 is Satan's home field. Jesus is with him in the wilderness where there is no food, no vegetation, not anything at all. It is the anti-Eden. It is a place of barrenness and dryness, the place of hunger and thirst, the place of death instead of life, the place of rebellion against God with Israel, the place of evil and the place of the devil. And that is where we hear Jesus go immediately after his baptism, at the beginning of his ministry, and he goes there for you and for me. And he doesn't go there, he doesn't happen there accidentally or by chance. He was led there by the Holy Spirit, still soaking from the waters of the Jordan River, and this so that he could begin all that he had come to do. Jesus is entering the battlefield to confront the evil one, to be tempted by him. And Jesus is fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And Luke, he casually remarks, he was hungry. And that is when Satan begins his first attack. He says, if you are the son of God, well, then command this stone to become bread. It seems like such a little thing, doesn't it? But sometimes the littlest things can be the biggest temptations and the most dangerous ones. The things that we can so easily dismiss because they seem so inconsequential. The things that we can do and no one else will really notice. The things that we can get away with. Little words or little thoughts, little disobediences, little forays into that which we know is wrong. But you see, Satan knows something about these so-called little sins. He knows how deadly all sins are, even sins that we think are just normal And Jesus is well aware of that, too. There are no little sins with God, no sins that don't matter to him, no sins for which Jesus did not die. The things of this world that we sinfully hunger and thirst for above our trust in God, no matter how small or how big they might be, they in the end will lead us away from God and his gracious provision. So as deadly as that forbidden fruit was in the garden to Adam and Eve, so is this bread in the wilderness deadly to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't hunger and thirst for the things of this world like we so often do. Jesus hungers and thirsts for righteousness. The righteousness of God and the righteousness that he earned by his perfect life. So this little temptation is met by a strong rejection, a strong defense. Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, our trust is not in what provides for us provisionally and temporarily. Life is given and sustained only by God. It is certainly not sustained by us, by our willpower, and certainly not by Satan. So Satan regroups. 
He prepares his next attack because he does not surrender easily. And so he takes Jesus up and Luke says he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And we might wonder, well, what was it that Jesus was seeing? What was the devil showing Jesus? Was he showing him the the magnificent palaces of old? That would be impressive to see. Or maybe the Roman Empire at the time at the height of its glory. Maybe Jesus saw everything in all places and all time, including our own cities today and the advances of our technologies and the wonders of both the ancient and the modern worlds. Well, we don't know for certain what Jesus saw, but if I were to venture a guess, I don't think that's what Satan showed Jesus. Because in the end, buildings and empires, that wouldn't have tempted Jesus, and Satan would have known that. None of that would have impressed the one who had come down from heaven from the throne room of God himself. But instead, what would have grabbed Jesus' attention would have been all the people in all the kingdoms of the world. Because that was who Jesus had come to save. All the people out there seen all at once by Jesus, all the people who were oppressed by this world's prince and by sin and evil, bent low under heavy burdens, people struggling and crying and suffering. I imagine that Satan showed Jesus all people, including you and me. And then he said to Jesus, trade me. If you worship me, I will let them go. And that might have been tempting to Jesus, because that's why Jesus did come, to save the people that he saw. But Satan was lying, of course. He knew that if he was able to make Jesus worship him, then Jesus would be defeated and all the people would still be his. But there is a kernel of truth in what the devil said. And that's how the devil usually works. He always slips in just enough of the truth to make a temptation seem maybe good or right or enticing. Because Jesus did come into this world to trade. But not by giving himself into Satan's hands, but by giving himself into the Father's hands at the cross. By taking your sin and trading you his forgiveness. By taking your death and trading you his life. By taking your hell and trading you his kingdom. You see, the freedom that Satan promises is not freedom at all. It is only slavery in disguise. And just like with Adam and Eve, he tempts people with just a kernel of truth, but it is anything but freedom. But it's better instead to be a child of God and under God's care. And so Jesus, who knew all this, told Satan, no, no deal. He said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so Jesus fights off the devil's second attack and prepares for the third. And Satan says, let's see if your so-called father has the same dedication to you as you seem to have to him. 
If you are the son of God, well then throw yourself down from here, from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, and show me this father that you trust. Show me this God that you serve. Show me how he supposedly loves you if he'll really send his angels concerning you, if he'll really guard you. Show me. How often have those words come from our lips before? Or from our hearts or our minds in prayer? God, your word just doesn't seem to be enough for me. I need you to show me. God, I'm not sure about all of this going on in my life right now. I need you to show me. God, you don't seem to care about what I'm going through. Show me you actually love me. It's tempting to put God to the test because we do honestly desire some confirmation of his love. But in the end, It's a false pursuit, and it's also unnecessary because what Satan doesn't want us to remember is that God has already definitively shown us his love. And that's what brought Jesus to the wilderness in the first place. That's why Jesus was there. It was out of God's love. And not only that, but his love is what brought Jesus to this earth and to this to his manger and to his family and to his town and to his country and to the crowds and to the city of Jerusalem. It's what brought Jesus to the Sanhedrin and to Pontius Pilate and to the whip and to the cross. It's what brought Jesus to the grave. God's love brought Jesus there. God's love for you and for me. And Jesus was willing to withstand the onslaught of all that the devil and evil and sin and death and hell could throw at him all out of love for us. And so Jesus told the devil, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He didn't need to test God's love because he knew he was there as God's love. For God so loved the world That he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so here we are on this first Sunday in Lent, listening to this epic battle that is retold every first Sunday of Lent. And, And we see that Jesus, our valiant one, our champion, has won the battlefield that day. Three attacks by Satan and three perfect defenses using God's word to defeat him. Jesus was victorious over Satan that day and the devil had to withdraw. Now, Luke tells us that the devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time, it says, because although he had lost that battle, he was convinced that the war was far from over. And so later on in Jesus's life and in the gospel story, that opportune time does arrive. All during Jesus' ministry, Satan has been preparing his final assault when Jesus would take the field once again in another wilderness, this time the wilderness of Golgotha, of the cross, when Jesus again would be found forsaken and alone. And Luke makes it clear, Satan is maneuvering all of these 
battle pieces like a real-life chessboard, even turning Jesus' own disciples against him, even causing them to abandon him, turning Jesus' own people against him, turning the rulers of Israel and Rome against him. And so this battle is reaching a fevered pitch at the cross, and there was Satan hissing in Jesus' ear once again with those same deceitful words, this time using the mouths of the people around the cross who were mocking Jesus, the people that Jesus had come to save, and they were saying to him, well, if you are the Son of God, then take yourself off the cross. Save yourself. Prove to us that you are who you say you are. It was that temptation all over again. Well, Jesus did prove it. But not in the way that they were thinking or asking. Jesus did not listen to Satan. Instead, at his cross, Jesus, our valiant one, was faithful and dedicated, strong and steadfast, resisting every last temptation. And he would eventually come down from the cross, but not before the life in his body had left his body. He won the war by choosing to stay and die so that he could pay the price for every sin that could possibly keep us separated from God's love. And right when Satan thought that he had finally gotten the best of Jesus, when Satan used all his weapons of sin and evil and death itself to take down God's own son, that is precisely when Jesus demonstrated that nothing would or could ever defeat him. Jesus burst out of that tomb on that Easter morning and he seized his victory once and for all and Satan was forever and eternally defeated. Now in our lives today, we know that Satan's not gone yet. He knows that he can't defeat Jesus. He knows that is over. He's lost that war. But before the time comes for him to be cast into his eternal prison, he is turning his attention elsewhere. He turns his attention to you and to me. He doesn't need to spend much time with the rest of the unbelieving world. He knows as long as they are chasing after anything except the one and only God, if he can turn them away from the love of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and salvation won for them, well, then he knows no matter what it is, he's got them right where he wants them. Instead, it's a Christian who should expect Satan's full and undivided attention. A Christian, we should expect the fiercest of fights as the devil tries to pick us off one by one. And, and you know, you know that life is very much a battle. It is full of sufferings and difficulties, and you only need to look around this world for just a moment in order to see just that and to see all the chaos and the havoc and the pain and the destruction that Satan can cause in this world. On the news, you've seen the images just as well as I have of, of bombed out buildings and, and refugees in subway tunnels and columns of tanks and armies. This world lacks peace because without Jesus, it does not know 
peace. But we also don't need to go halfway around the world in order to find a lack of peace because we find it here as well. We find it in our community and in our church and in our families and in our own hearts and in our own lives. We naturally lack peace in this world because of our human sin and our willingness to question God's love for us at times. And so life is a battle. It is a physical, it is a mental, it is emotional, it is a spiritual battle. And among all of this wreckage that is being caused, there stands our enemy, who appears a lot stronger than we are. He is a prowling lion, Scripture says, looking for someone to devour. He lies, he deceives, he accuses, he tempts, he lures. He makes evil look good and good look evil. And most of all, he is trying to get you to doubt God's word, to doubt God's love in Christ for you. And you know what? He's very good at what he does. That's how it all began with Adam and Eve in the first place. It's what he's practiced for millennia now. He knows how weak we are as human beings, and Satan will not rest his assault until we are defeated. So do we despair? Do we need to fear? Though devils all the world should fill all eager to devour us, we tremble not. We fear no ill. They shall not overpower us. This world's prince may still scowl fierce as he will. He can harm us none. He's judged. The deed is done. And one little word can fell him. Maybe you've heard this before, but are you curious as to what Luther had in mind when he talks about the little word that can fell Satan? It's the only word that we need to remember whenever he tempts us to doubt God's love for us. When, when the devil wants us to focus on all the turmoil and chaos and sin and evil in this world instead of fixing our eyes on Christ. When the devil wants to accuse us of our sins and convince us that there is no possible way for our God to forgive and to love a sinner like me. All it takes is one word. And that word is liar. Luther said that's the only word you need when it comes to Satan. He is and forever will be a liar. And so there's nothing that he can do. There's nothing that he can say that will ever be able to overcome what Christ has done for us. There is nothing he can do against Christ who is fighting and has already fought and won on our behalf. So we turn to Christ's word just as Jesus did. In his temptation with the devil, he turned to God's word. And in that word of God, as we hear again today, we hear all about how our valiant one went to the cross and then went to the empty tomb so that we are forever and always assured that any threat that Satan might think of mounting against us 
that threat is already destroyed by Jesus Christ. It is destroyed by our champion, our valiant one. By his death and resurrection, Jesus defeated Satan once and for all. And so now he gives us his love, his forgiveness, his word, which we can use as a mighty fortress, as a shield and weapon. And it will always protect us from harm, no matter what we may face in this world. Take they our life, our goods, our fame, our child, our spouse, though these all be gone, our victory has been won. And the kingdom, ours, remaineth. No matter what could possibly happen to you in this life, Jesus' victory for you will never be in question. And so we begin another Lenten season as if it's the beginning of another battle, and it is. It reminds us that we are always battling in this life, and we recognize that life is hard. And we may even be here today in this church with heavy hearts, as I know we all are, especially as we think about Pastor Tom and Pam, all those who are in need of God's healing and help, all those who are on our hearts and minds and maybe even ourselves who are struggling because this life is hard. We are constantly being tempted and we constantly fail. We constantly sin and need forgiveness. We fall short. We are constantly reminded of our own human weaknesses. We are constantly reminded of our need for God's salvation. We will continue in this struggle until God calls us home or until Jesus comes again. But as you leave here today, I want you to remember something very clearly. That this isn't a battle that you fight alone. In fact, this isn't a battle that its ending is undecided. This is a battle that's already been won. And it's been won by Jesus. And so this Lenten season, we look to him. And we find that the valiant one, our mighty fortress, he's already holding the field. And he will do so forever. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.